Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Abraham Lincoln has provided familiar terrain for generations of writers. Historian and Politico contributing writer Joshua Zeitz brings a new angle to Lincoln's story how his concept of faith and God evolved during the course of the war and following the death of his young son, Willie. This week, we talked to him about his new book, Lincoln's God. He contends that Lincoln's relationship with the country's evangelical movement shaped his views on slavery as the moral cause for the war. And in turn, the evangelicals became powerful political allies for Lincoln. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Joshua Zeitz, your new book is titled Lincoln's God, How Faith Transformed a President and a Nation. I think we both know that there's probably no subject that's been more plumbed than Abraham Lincoln over the centuries here. What is your new angle on him in this book? I wanted to to look at Lincoln uh, and his spiritual journey uh, throughout the 1800s, from the 1820s, 30s, through the, uh, through the Civil War. And, and and use that as a way to explore the importance and, and centrality of religion uh, to the way that Americans, uh, particularly Northerners, perceived the Civil War, understood their role in that war, and made sense of all of the disruption and the carnage and and, and the social change that occurred in that period. And and you know Lincoln, to your point, has been well plumbed. There's there's precious little you can find about him that hasn't been written on. Although oddly enough his um his relationship both with religion on a personal level and the churches uh, on a political level is is a really important part of his presidency that i think has been underserved but you know when you're you're thinking about lincoln he is at at, at both you know in, in both ways he's sort of an avatar for the 19th century in, in the united states but he's also a, a classic iconoclast and so looking at him and and using him as the narrative pull through uh, for that story seemed to me like it might be uh, a compelling way to go about the, 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 the topic. Do you contend that Lincoln's spirituality is important to the course of American history? Yeah, I think I think that, you know, Lincoln comes into the, the presidency as a, as a pretty fervent non-believer and, and in his last days he's something of a believer, although again, in a way that's fairly iconoclastic. And I think that to understand his um, well, two things to understand his personal tolerance for uh for the disruption the pain the violence that he had to oversee as president understanding his spiritual journey is is helpful and important but also to understand how lincoln pulled the north along got people to at first support the war for union and then reconceptualize the war as a war uh to abolish slavery um religion is central to that because the churches played a huge role in that people understood that transition through a religious lens and he proved really deft at, at marshalling support for the evolving war effort um, by appealing to churches, by appearing, appealing to people's individual spirituality. And so I think that's an important part of that story. Here's a highly speculative question. Could the war have been won without all of the involvement of the churches that you write about? I mean, that's highly speculative. I think that uh, what I would say is that the churches, the, the northern evangelical Protestant churches were enormously influential in marshalling support for the war. They did it in material ways. They were the churches served as staging grounds to 
uh, raise recruits uh, and, and enlist recruits. They were the places where recruits gathered and their families gathered for really elaborate ceremonies before they were sent off to war. The churches staffed um, almost every regiment with chaplains. The churches were enormously influential increasingly throughout the war in, in marshalling political support for the war effort and the administration and eventually the Republican Party. Um, and, and the churches also, you know, every Sunday, ministers help to frame the war and help people make sense of it, make sense of the sacrifices that they were that they were being asked uh, to, to make. And so I, I would say, I don't know whether in the absence of the churches, the, the North could have won the war, but certainly they were widely influential influences. And, you know, it's important to remember, and I think easy for Americans of this generation um, to, to forget that in the mid and, and late 19th century, uh, Protestant churches were arguably the, the sort of largest and most influential building block of civil society. They had enormous sweep uh, and they had, you know, unparalleled, um, they had unparalleled influence. And so the, the fact that they engaged fully uh, on, you know, to, to support that war effort was meaningful. And how important were the churches to Lincoln's reelection in 1864? It's one of the most interesting parts of the, the, the book from my perspective, having researched it, is that, you know, in the, in, in the mid, early and mid 19th century, the churches were enormously influential, but there was a broad understanding that, that there should be uh, a line between the secular and the sacred, between uh, the, the churches and, and state. And so churches, by and large, steered clear of politics. That changed gradually over the course of the war. In the early 1860s, 1861, 1862, the churches are, as you would expect, they're, in, they're involving themselves on behalf of the, the, the country's war effort. They want to be patriotic. They want to, um, they want to frame the war as an important mission uh, to save democratic society. And there had always been this millennial strain in evangelical Protestantism that viewed America as you know the new canaan and so if you're going to protect you know god's uh you know new canaan you, you you have to support the war effort and so but what's fascinating is that by 1863 1864 the the facts on the ground caused the churches to become entirely more political because as the democratic party the opposition party splintered and you had a kind of uh, so-called war Democrats who supported the administration's war policies, although they were tepid on abolition. But then you had a very large contingent of the Democratic Party, the so-called peace Democrats or copperheads, who wanted to essentially let the South go its own way or admit the South back with slavery intact. Um, you know, it became very difficult for church leaders to say you could be a good Democrat, be a good Christian, particularly as abolition became a war aim and the churches lined up squarely in favor of it. And so by 1864, the churches actually are are quite political and you have prominent lay and religious leaders actively campaigning for the Republican ticket and for Lincoln's reelection. You have ministers uh, and, and lay leaders and in individual churches and, uh, you know, Presbyterian synods and, uh, uh, the, you know, Methodist circuits and, and, and Baptist associations openly endorsing the Republican ticket, telling people to be a good Christian, you have to vote Republican. So the church has become extremely mobilized on behalf of the Republican Party in 64. Now, you know, could he could, could Lincoln have won without their support? Who knows? Uh, but he, he but he but he did win with their active um, and enthusiastic support. You earlier 
<coughs> excuse me, penned a biography of Lincoln's two top aides, Nicolay and Hay. Um, I'm wondering whether or not that set the, the seeds for this book. Did they provide enough information on this topic of Lincoln's spirituality to have you investigate further? No, very little. You know, John Hay was a sort of irreverent character. I mean, I, I think he, he probably w went through the motions of pretending to be a pretty good Christian, but I, I see very little in his, you know, I've read a lot of his, I've read most of his papers. I don't, I don't see much in there to suggest that he was particularly devout. And I think Nikolai, the same, if they were, they were privately. So it wasn't something that was effusive for them. So they didn't leave much record on this, which is interesting. Uh, Nikolai later felt that people had exaggerated Lincoln's, you know, personal um, evolution, uh, spiritual evolution. Uh, and I think it's one of those rare moments where Nikolai probably got it wrong, but um, it, it strikes me and it's speculative, but it's probably not something that they discussed at length with him. What and they, you know, the, the most interesting document in some ways that gives you insight into Lincoln's personal religious evolution was this this scrap of paper he wrote kind of two or three paragraphs uh, they, they later called it uh, meditations on the divine will um in which he's it's it's almost he didn't keep a diary but it, it's almost as though it were a lone diary entry and it was written in 1862 and he's per, he's grappling he's writing to himself and grappling with the question of what god's will was and 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 what god expected of him but they didn't discover it until after the war and they seemed as surprised as anyone uh to find it in his trove of documents so it doesn't seem likely that he he spoke at length with them about it as a researcher and a writer what draws you back to this period you know there there, there are a bunch of things i mean i i think that um in this particular era like in the the, the era we're living in um there's a great amount of, of proximity at least thematically to the to the political acrimony um, and division of the 1850s and then i find the 1860s and the constitutional and social revolution of the 1860s to be so deeply informative and important to us right now which is something we could talk about further in in, in this discussion um, but as a researcher one of the things i love about this period is that you can really access people's internal lives um i've you know i was trained as a 19th and 20th century American historian, and a lot of my original work was done on, on 20th century U.S. history, and I'll, I'll write on that again and, and still do. Um, but people wrote letters back then, and they kept diaries, and they gave, you know, you have this portal into people's interior lives. Now, for Lincoln, that is certainly less so because he was, as he as he once said of himself, one of the most shut-mouthed men you, you, you could possibly meet, or maybe that was his law partner who said that of him. But, but um, you know the people around him were were really prolific diarists and if you take like nikolai and hay they had a lifelong um correspondence with each other which gives us a great deal of insight into the events um and actors of that day but they also just were sparkling writers and conversationalists and you got a real sense of who they were on a personal level i don't i think that's lost people don't write letters anymore and I'm not even sure how many people write deeply personal emails and text messages are going to be lost to the ages for the most part. So it'll be really interesting to see how future generations of historians try to get the richness and depth um, that I can get or a 19th century historian can get from that era looking at you know historical actors today. I think it'll be a real challenge and it, it may just be very difficult if, if not impossible. 
Of course, to be able to understand his evolution, you start with his beginnings. And so I want to spend a little bit of time there. Tell me about Lincoln's birth years, his childhood years growing up in, in his life with his parents and in, in hardscrabble, Kentucky. Yeah, so, so Lincoln's born in Kentucky and then largely raised in, uh, in Southern Indiana. And then uh, when he turns about 20 or so, they move to, uh, to Central Illinois. And you know, his childhood is spent like, like many of his peers. You know, he's raised um, by parents who are essentially subsistence farmers. They attempt to farm for the proto market a little bit, but this is a period before the great transportation revolution in the US. So there are no really good macadamized roads. There are very few canals by that point. There are certainly no railroads at that point, um, you know, bridges, other infrastructure. And so when you think about it, if you're being raised in that in that environment, um, you're, you're farming, you know, for subsistence and you're you're largely existing in a barter economy, a cashless economy. Um, you, you could try to farm commercially, but there's nowhere to bring, you know, there's no method to bring your goods to market. Lincoln's father tried it once or twice and it, and it you know, it didn't work because it costs more money to move the goods than, than he made by selling it. So it's a, it's a, it's a world that Lincoln didn't like. He, he, uh, growing up at that point, he had broader ambitions, felt that his parents had a sort of constrained set of aspirations and a constrained idea of what you know one could be in the world and so um you know this story and joyce appleby did a, a good academic article on this years ago where she looked at the kind the kind of tension that existed between lincoln and his father was very typical in that age because lincoln is you know abe lincoln is straddling two worlds this subsistence you know this this world of subsistence farming uh and extended pinship networks uh that his father um, and, and mother and then later stepmother inhabited. And then this burgeoning market economy that's beginning to, to burst up around him that offers young men like him who want to be on the make opportunities to do things that didn't involve farming or physical labor or that, it, you know, enabled them to, to exist in a market economy and, and reap the fruits of their ambition. Uh, and so I think for him, there was this tension and a dissatisfaction with his, his, the life that he lived as a, a, a young boy and young man oftentimes bubbled over into a, a tension with his father who lived firmly in that world and not in the world that Lincoln would eventually enter as a, you know, as a, as a store clerk, as a surveyor, as a post uh, postmaster, as a lawyer and a politician. I have two uh, points I wanted to, before we leave that period. This was a, a, a fact that had missed my attention on the many Lincoln things I've read, that his father hired him out for manual labor. And uh, you suggest that this uh, gave him some perspectives on slavery. Well, that's what people have said. You know, there's that you, you I, I think, I think that it, I, I would say less that it gave him perspectives on slavery and it gave him more a sense of ownership over one's labor. So, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln chafed under his father's control. You know, in that period, you know, young men weren't permitted to emancipate themselves effectively um, until they were 21. And so his father was able to, to lend him out for labor and the wages would go to his father. Um, and and Lincoln found it unjust. You know, there was somebody later said that Lincoln said, uh, or, or somebody later remembered, and I don't, I don't frankly think there's any evidence of it, but that Lincoln said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, I know what it's like to be a slave because I was a slave for my father. I don't think he said it, but I think that if you look at the way in which he developed his anti-slavery convictions, they were 
far more rooted in kind of ideas of natural law and free labor and a free labor market than they were in any religious sensibility in the 1840s and 50s. And he firmly believed that people, you know, deserved to, to benefit from the, the labor that they did and that, that, you know, if you earn something through sweat and labor, it was yours, it wasn't someone else's. So I think I think it probably informed his ideas about that, but I don't, I don't think he ever saw himself as having been, you know, in, in any parallel uh, arrangement to slavery. One other point from that period, you quote his cousin Sophie, who said that Abraham always had a natural idea he was going to be something. Yeah. He, um, he was ambitious from the start. He was a young man from really constrained circumstances who felt, according to Sophie, and you have to allow for the fact that the, that people's memories were colored after the fact, um, but it was very clear that he had a burning ambition really young, and that that is part of what I think caused him to butt up against his parents. And to that point, you know, his parents were very devout Baptist, hard shell Baptist or anti-mission Baptist, so they were they were sort of not evangelical they were more predestinarian in their in their belief set they were more kind of traditional calvinists and you know look you know calvinists could be hyper competitive in the marketplace if you look at puritans who came from england uh to what is now new england in the 1600s these were oftentimes extremely um these are people who were extremely involved in in, in the market economy in, in the uk and in europe um, but the kind of Calvinism that his parents embraced had a sort of fatalism to it. It didn't give a sense that people had agency, uh, personal agency, uh, over their lives or their or their the, their their fate in the next life. And it, it, you know, it was a theology that made a lot of sense in a world where you you really didn't have a lot of agency over your life. But Lincoln is embracing this vibrant market economy in which personal agency and ambition are. Are thought to be rewarded, and, and certainly, you know, Sophie's remark, if, if, if indeed she said that, because we have to take it on face value, um, it, it gives us a kind of uh, a little bit of a window into young Abe Lincoln and, and what he wanted differently from his life. So he set out at age 22 to New Salem, Illinois. A, a description you write of him: he was friendless, uneducated, penniless, and alone in the world for the first time. How did Abraham? He said that. Uh, how he did, he, it was his words. How did Abraham yeah. Lincoln reinvent himself? Yeah, New, you know, New Salem is like is is deeply uh, ingrained in, in Lincoln lore, and he only lived there for about five or six years. Um, it was this tiny, tiny, tiny little hamlet, but it was the first proper town he had ever lived in, and it, and it seems to have attracted a kind of quirky, eccentric. Um, and diverse group of people. I'm not sure why, uh, but it but it was, um, you know, people liked him. And it was the place where he, he generally uh, roomed and boarded while he was there. He never owned any property of his own, although he did at one point borrow money uh, to try to buy a store with a, with a friend and that went bankrupt. But um, but the, the townspeople sort of took him in. He got there, he was this very strange, lanky kid who was wearing ill-fitting clothes and um, but it's there where he met people who got him, you know, uh, taught him how to get really engaged in serious books and taught him how to be a surveyor. It's there where he started to kind of study the law and it's there where he first ran for the legislature. First time he lost, second time he won. But it, it gave him the confidence and the lift uh, and it gave him a pathway to break free of the world that his parents lived in. So it was an enormously influential um, in his, in, 
in his trajectory. And then the town disappears almost as soon as he leaves. He left, you know, in the late 1830s to move to Springfield, which was the new capital. And he was a state legislator and he moved, you know, he set up a law office there with a partner. And by the early 1840s, New Salem ceases to exist. But for that brief moment, it was almost like his um, spring training camp. It was a remarkable thing. It was in New Salem. You tell readers that he began to read partisan newspapers, driving his development into an ardent and outspoken Whig. What did it mean to be a Whig at Lincoln's time? Well, the Whig Party was this sort of like big coalition that originally formed primarily in opposition to Andrew Jackson's presidency. And they were sort of appalled by the militarism of it, the treatment of Native Americans, the uh, expansionist um, aspirations of the Democratic Party. And they were mostly, you know, they called themselves the Whigs, fashioned after English, the English Whig opposition party, because they really, in the same way that English Whigs were effectively opposed to the over-exercise of royal and executive authority, they also viewed Andrew Jackson as somebody who was far outreaching or overreaching the constitutional scope of his authority. But there was a coherence to what they liked. The, the historians used to say, Democrats wanted to expand the United States over space, meaning they wanted um, they wanted you know they wanted to take the U.S. from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast and all the way down to Mexico, whereas Whigs wanted to expand it over time. And what they meant by that is that Whigs really believed in in um, investing in material progress. So they were big supporters of what was then called internal improvements, which today we would call infrastructure. So it was infrastructure week for the Whigs every week. They liked to build roads and railroads and bridges. They liked to open up new markets and create opportunities for people to participate in a market economy. They were fervent supporters of um, nascent public education and just education in general. Um, they, you know, they believed that America was in a forward um, so state of forward social progress. And they tended, although there was at that point no clean division religiously uh, in political life, that they, they were sort of called the Christian party or fashioned themselves as the Christian party because they tended to be heavily engaged in social reform movements, everything from, again, public education to temperance to uh, um, Sabbatarianism in some cases. And you know, they supported that they supported an active role for Protestant religion in public life as in as much as it informed morality and priorities. So it was, um, you, you know, for somebody like Lincoln, who wanted to make this transition from a subsistence world of a world of subsistence farming to becoming a, a white collar professional, as we might call it today, in a new market economy, it made a lot of sense for him to gravitate to that. And he was an ardent Whig. He was a Whig till the end. And in fact, he was pretty late in, 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 in acknowledging that the Whig party had died by 1854. He was late in becoming a Republican, relatively speaking. While Lincoln is developing, there is a great religious revival sweeping the country. We now call it the, great, the Second Great Awakening. Tell me about the brand of Christianity that was becoming so popular and why it was becoming so popular. So it's it's hard to generalize and one shouldn't, but 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 if we're going to, so we will. Um, the the Second Great Awakening draws millions of, of of Americans, North and South, to either new churches or older churches that are kind of reinventing themselves. And there there are a couple of of you know broadly speaking, a couple of strains to this. These churches tend to emphasize the agency of the individual in deciding to become a Christian, accept Christ into his or her life. 
and secure salvation in the next world, which is quite a bit different from the Calvinism that that many Northerners that had grown up with, um, or that somebody like Lincoln had grown up with, where there was a real predestinarian type of um, strain to those churches, particularly Presbyterian, Baptist, and and um, Congregationalist churches. So that changes, and people come to believe that they have a great deal of personal agency in securing their own salvation and election. I think second, there's a feeling that one can have a really personal relationship with Christ. Um, I'm Jewish, so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in, in, in fairly broad terms, and I, and I always preface by saying that I, I think a lot of my Christian friends and Christian readers probably have a stronger grasp on how to explain this, but I think uh, than I do intuitively, but uh, there, there was a, a sense, particularly among, you know, say, old school Presbyterians or Calvinists within the Baptist and Presbyterian movements, that God was a sort of distant and unknowable God for evangelicals, there was a personal relationship with Christ that that was deeply and uh, deeply felt. And I think the third thing is it's a hyper democratic type of movement, and I mean that in a couple of ways. So remember that this is all happening as the country is also transitioning from being fairly elite led, um, an elite led republic basically uh, in the in the 1780s and 90s to a hyper-democratic society by the 1820s and 30s, both on an economic and, and politics small p level. Um, and just as you're getting heightened competition between political parties, which didn't exist in the 1790s in any real fashion, um, you're also getting competition between these new rising denominations. And so the Baptists, Methodists, New School Presbyterians, uh, Disciples of Christ, and tons of other offshoot um, denominations uh, and even denominations within denominations or movements within denominations so different movements within the Baptist and Presbyterian churches they're competing for 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 uh, to fill pews they they are trying to capture this incredible religious um, sensibility they're trying they're they're staging revivals and prayer meetings and trying to you know to, to draw people to their own churches so you're getting like literal democratic competition for churchgoers, but you're also getting doctrinal democratization where people both can shop for the type of denomination that appeals to them um, and, and, the, and, and these churches and these, these, these evangelical churches are also adjusting the theology to meet popular sentiment. And, and, and this is a world in which people want to feel control, like this is a rising democracy and a rising market economy. And at the same time, you're getting the democratization of the churches. And European visitors to the U.S. often noted that these things were happening at the same time. They couldn't quite get their their head around it, like what did it all mean in a coherent way? But you're getting a democratization of politics, democratization of the economy, and a democratization of churches, and it's all happening at the same time. And one statistic that stood out to me from this section, when Lincoln was born, there were 46 urban areas in the United States, and by 1860, when he was elected, 400 urban areas. So the pace of growth and change was just something we can almost not comprehend today. Uh, that, so what- that, that's right. I, would, I, would, I would just remind people that um, urban meant about 2,500 people, but-, but, but, <laughs> but it was still urban. Yeah, right. It was urban. Like, listen, if you've, if you've ever lived in a farming community or in rural, like a really rural area where you're not anywhere near your neighbors, and then you move to a small town with 2,500 people, it's a difference. What did Lincoln think of this this expanding evangelical movement? He was pretty indifferent to it for the greater part of of his young adulthood. Um, there is no evidence that he ever. Well, I mean, there's there's evidence to the contrary. He 
you know, he purportedly was a religious scoffer and a fairly open one in the 1830s. And um, so much so that his friends were really concerned that this was going to hurt his political career. He purportedly had written a, 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 a you know, a, a, a tract, a kind of irreligious tract attempting to, to disprove the divinity of Christ. Whether that happened or not is an open question. We'll never know. But these rumors dogged him in his first race for the state legislature uh, in the 1830s, and they dogged him in his race for Congress in 1846, when it was his, his sort of bizarre misfortune as somebody who really marched to the beat of his own drum and was not religious. It was his bizarre misfortune that his opponent that year was Peter Cartwright, a Democratic nominee uh, and former state legislator who also happened to be a Methodist minister and one of the most uh, renowned circuit riders in in the Midwest, and it was a, it was a problem for Lincoln that he was seen as a religious scoffer, and so he learned to be fairly tight-lipped about this. And we know that as late as 1858, the local Presbyterian minister in uh, in Springfield, Illinois, or one of the Presbyterian ministers in Springfield, who was the the, the minister at the church where the Lincolns rented a pew, mostly in deference to Mary Todd Lincoln, um, he attempted to convert. Uh, Lincoln. He he would later say that he managed to do it, but one of his one of Lincoln's friends said that the minister tried and just just couldn't. And there's nothing to suggest, nothing in the public record or private record to suggest that Lincoln had any real sense of religiosity before before he went to Washington as president. We're at the halfway point of our conversation about Lincoln's God with author Josh Seitz. Uh, Josh, let me ask you, we're going to fast forward, you mentioned 1858, and that was the year that Lincoln really uh, catapulted to national attention with his failed Senate bid against Stephen A. Douglas. You say that by this point, regarding the slavery question, he was a man on fire, a very different sort of politician from the one he had formerly been. Uh, so how did he approach the question in his campaigning for office in 1858? Uh, and, and how did that yeah. how did that continue to develop as he sought the presidency? So it's interesting. Lincoln Lincoln came home from from his one term in Congress in in eighteen forty nine, and uh, he was a sort of washed up politician. His term in Congress had been fairly unsuccessful. He didn't run for reelection because there was an agreement among Whigs in that district. They would rotate, but he probably wouldn't have been reelected had he won. Um, and he basically retired from politics for five years, and then he he is reawakened in 1854 by the Kansas-Nebraska Kansas Act, which effectively abrogated the old Missouri Compromise and opened Northern territories to slavery. And he was what you would call a, a single-issue politician. The, I mean, he had lots of ideas about lots of things, and he was very Whiggish in, in his politics, but he was mostly animated by his opposition to slavery. And what makes him so interesting and different from many of his new colleagues in, in the newly formed Republican Party, which was founded in opposition to slavery, is that he comes at it from a sort of uh, from a natural rights and, and economic point of view. He's deeply offended by slavery. He, found, he finds it repugnant. He's personally offended by it, but it's not driven by any religious conviction because he had almost no religious conviction at this point. And whereas for other people like Salmon P. Chase or Joshua Giddings, really hardcore anti-slavery politicians who are coming at this um, from a deep sense of religious offense, for him, slavery is is a sin. It's it's a sin in the sense that it's it, it denies people their natural rights. It denies people their economic rights. He's really offended that people 
are being pressed into to labor and not being able to enjoy the, the fruits of that labor and that they're denied their basic, um, what you would call sort of almost like the types of rights that Tom, you know, natural rights that Thomas Paine might have described. But there's no sense of religious outrage in the, in the way that other Republicans um, brought to the debate. If you were to read the texts of the 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates, how many times would he have invoked God? Two or three times, four or five times, and he's not really invoking God. In a couple places, he talks about the way in which the slavery issue has has rent the churches in two because the major Protestant denominations, Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, and Methodists had broke into southern and northern branches in the 1840s. And so he talks about the way in which slavery is degrading all institutions, including religious institutions, uh, and he'll occasionally throw in a reference to God, but it's it's pretty it's it's in passing. It's not it's it's not even a, a it's not even a minor minor theme in those debates for him. So two years later, as he was selling himself to a national audience, did it change? It starts to change. Uh, it, it, not not during the campaign, and the, the, there was an unspoken rule. Um, which Stephen Douglas actually violated because he and Douglas found themselves running against each other uh, for president in 1860 again. But other than Stephen Douglas, most candidates then viewed it as as not the done thing to campaign once they had been nominated. So Lincoln didn't say anything publicly during the campaign. But you begin, there's this period um, about the t 10 or 12 days or so after he leaves Springfield en route to DC to assume the presidency uh, in February, March of 1861, he, um, you know, he does, he stops and gives speeches in, in, in quite a few northern cities and towns. Some were more formal than others, but you see references to the Almighty creeping into these speeches and uh, references to sort of divine will and what's expected of him and the nation in this moment, you know, this moment of, of real tension. And there's the famous speech he gives before boarding the train in Springfield to his neighbors where it's a farewell and, he, and that one has some fairly religious overtones and, and it's really sentimental because he viewed, you know, he viewed Sangamon County as the, the, the place that really made him who he was and he was bidding farewell to these people. But you begin to see it then and we, we can't really tell whether that was meant um, as a nod to people's religious sensibilities or whether it was a, a feeling that was swelling up in him. It's hard to say, but it's it's really the first moment when you see him start to invoke uh, religious, you know, religious language and, and, and themes in his, uh, in his public speeches. So he's elected the Southern states secede. The first shots are fired at Fort Sumter and uh, the Civil War is on for the rest of his presidency. Though you say that the war became a real turning point for the churches themselves that opened the door to reformation of the American experiment. What are you telling us there? Yeah, the churches, you know, the evangelical Protestant churches um, had always, uh, or had for quite some time, for decades, had viewed, you know, I think I said this, America as sort of God's new Canaan, and they viewed it as as their mission to help kind of establish a thousand years of peace that would precede Christ's second coming. You know, I know some people probably thought this was a literal mission, and others probably thought that it was more metaphorical, but they believed that they had a a role to play in in in, in fulfilling that providential uh, destiny and mission for the United States. And the war both offends that mission because they view secession as being, you know, a, a slap in the face to that providential mission. But they also come to view it 
as a opportunity to cleanse the country of some of its original sins. And obviously the one that they focus on intently is slavery. And so while the churches themselves had been in tension over slavery uh, before the war, although it became easier for them to be more pronounced in their anti-slavery view after the Southern churches split off because they no longer had to accommodate their Southern churchgoers, um, co-religionists, the war itself really catalyzes a movement within the major evangelical churches to embrace emancipation as a as an aim and outcome of the war. And the churches kind of get there way sooner than other, uh, they get there sooner than the politicians. And, th and then they try to push the politicians in that direction. And their congregants. And their congregants. I mean, church leaders were particularly outspoken, um, but increasingly, church laity also comes to embrace it. Now, it creates a fair amount of tension, particularly in the lower Midwest, where there were a lot of churchgoers who had deep kinship ties and personal and business ties to the South. And so while they might be ardent unionists, they, they many of them deeply resented the idea that they were fighting a war to emancipate slaves. Uh, and they deeply resented the fact that their ministers and lay leaders were framing the war as, a, as an emancipation war, but it's pretty clear that they were, while a very vocal and probably not insignificant minority, they, they were a minority. And you uh, describe Lincoln as well as trying to walk this fine line or thread the needle on uh, uh, slavery as an outcome of the war, a particular outcome during the first two years. Uh, if not then, what would he describe as its objectives during the first two years of the war? Well, first of all, I would say first year and a half, right? Because there's this 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 incredible turning point in in barely a year and a half, less than a year and a half, because he signs the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862, uh, and he had had it in his desk for three, or, you know, two or three months before that, and had already been sort of pressure testing the idea. So, really, a year into the war, he's already gotten to the point where he understands that this is that slavery has to go if this war continues. But what gets him there? At first, you know, he he understands he's in this very tight position. He's got border states, you know, Kentucky, Maryland, you know, Delaware, Missouri. Those are slaveholding states. Uh, it's very tentative. But it's really tentative that they stayed in the Union. He had to do some pretty extra legal things to keep Maryland in the Union. Kentucky was sort of, for the first part of the war, he kind of had to leave it alone and not even try to put federal troops there or impose any sort of federal presence there. So he's desperately invested in making sure that those four states don't secede. Uh, and, and it would have been consequential because they had more industrial and economic capacity than some of the states in the Deep South that had left. So he's got to do that. He's got to keep Democrats in the North who are barely pro-slavery, but, but pro-union as well. He's got to keep them invested in the war effort. And so he can't move too far. But on the other hand, you know, the base of his own party and then the churches are moving rapidly in the direction of wanting to make emancipation a war aim. And so his first measure to sort of move this along and, and really like events moved faster than he did and, and in some ways they, they had to. Uh, but, you know, he frames the Emancipation Proclamation as a as a as a sort of war measure, right? It's not it's not it, it does fundamentally change what the outcome of the war will be if the North wins. But he frames it as something that the North can and should do and that he has authority to do. Uh, in, in furtherance of prosecuting the war because slaves constitute a, uh, or enslaved people constitute a, a vital economic and, and military resource to the South. And so his point is, I, I can free them 
if I need to do so to win the war. Uh, but that's a position that quickly evolves in 1863. And by mid-1863, he's describing this as an emancipation war. And it's not just a necessity. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of justice, in, in a sense. The date, February 20th, 1862, was a turning point you write about for Abraham Lincoln. What happened on that day? Well, his son, Willie, died. You know, Willie um, uh, was there. Uh, they had three sons at that point. One one son had died uh, as a really young boy back in Springfield. Willie got sick. He got typhoid uh, and he passed away in the White House. And it was crushing to the Lincolns. It was just devastating. And they were deeply, deeply attached to him. Uh, and to his brother and look you know his, his interior life is very difficult to access because he left very little personal record and so you have to go by what people remembered in in, in the moment and those memories could be imperfect or, or, or self-motivated years after the fact but it's very clear that it had a deep impact on both of them um and, and i think based on the research it's pretty clear and mary would later say the same that um, that it led him to rethink some of his, his ideas and thoughts about religion. You uh, say that during this time period, uh, Lincoln began to see himself as an instrument of God in prosecuting the war. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we know he's becoming in some ways more spiritual and more religious in 1862 and 1863. We see it in his writings, in his, his public papers, uh, we see it reflected in the memories of people who are around him, both family members, including his wife and friends and colleagues. Um, but we also know from his own writings and, 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 and conversations he had with other people, which they remembered after the fact, that he's coming to believe not only that there is a God, although his God is way less personal than the traditional evangelical conception of, of God and Christ, um, and it's, you know, his God is more unknowable and, and more distant, but, um, but he comes to believe that this whole war has been preordained, which was not an uncommon position. Many of the church leaders and, and religious leaders felt that this was a, an, you know, a, a divinely inspired and ordained war, but he also comes to believe that he has a, he's been chosen to play this role in it and to preside over it. And, you know, I think for him in part, this is a way for him to come to grasps with the the unspeakable carnage that he's been asked to preside over. He's got a he's the one asking everybody to pay this incredible butcher's bill, and so he he comes to think of this as as a role that he's been specially chosen to play. And it's it's interesting when you talked about his cousin Sophie's remark that Abe always had a sense that he was going to be someone. Well, he was now someone, and I think that that the weight of that wore down on him pretty heavy, and this became one of his ways to to reconcile it, but while so many of his evangelical, um, you know, uh, co-religionists viewed the war as something that they believed that, you know, the union was on God's side and God was on the union side, Lincoln was never quite as certain which side God wanted to win the war, if either, and he wasn't really entirely certain what he, he knew he was, he thought he was God's instrument and he said it, but he wasn't entirely sure whether, what, what that meant. And so he tried to, you know, he, he he had the burden of someone who felt that he had been chosen to do something, but that it was, his God was distant and unknowable, so it was difficult to understand precisely what that was supposed to be. An interesting sidebar history to the story of Lincoln and to the growing political potency of the evangelical churches are the soldiers themselves. 
in a, a chapter called The Soldier's War, you talk about the increasing religi religiosity of the two million Union troops who fought during the war. What was happening with the troops? This is happening North and South, by the way. I'm, this book is looking at the North, but it's happening on both sides. And you're seeing, you know, a massive um, upswing in religious revivals and tent meetings and worship meetings. You're seeing soldiers who had previously not felt themselves converted, converting and, you know, pledging themselves to uh, to Christ. So it's it's you unsurprisingly find that many soldiers are gravitating um, to Christianity in this period. Now, not to overstate the point, there were plenty of people as well who remained skeptics. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who was almost killed four times in battle, he would later become the Supreme Court justice. But you know, he was a lifelong skeptic, and he he was late dying at Antietam. He, he obviously lived, but he thought he was dying, and he was. Uh, and and he said after the fact that he, he he thought for a hot second about about converting and accepting Christ and then he realized that would be the height of hypocrisy because it wasn't even deeply felt so not everyone but for for many many soldiers religion becomes a not just a cause of comfort but like the prism through which they understand this war and their role in it you know you look if you for viewers who enjoyed Ken Burns's series the Civil War which is a bit dated now but a lot of people grew up on it you know one of the pull through voices there is Elijah Hunt Rhodes, who was a, a soldier, a deeply pious soldier from Rhode Island. And his diary is famous. And one of the last lines in his diary says, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says, I, you know, I, um, you know, I thank God that I was able to, you know, fight this war, help save my country and help free the slaves. And for him, it was all sort of of a piece, right? There was a religious mission here to save the Union and, and eradicate slavery. So advancing to the 1864 election in which the troops overwhelmingly supported Lincoln, uh, he faced General George McClellan, whom he had fired in the early days of the war. You describe that election as the most vicious and racially charged election in American history. What was it being fought over by that point? I mean, the Democratic Party at that point, for the Democratic Party, the, 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 the war had been fought. To, it was, it was uh, trying to, do this in a politic way. At, at that point, the, the country was deeply divided. The North was deeply divided, but but like more like on a 60-40 basis. Democrats either, you know, if you were a peace Democrat or a copperhead, you wanted to end this war, super peace, either let the South go its own way with its slaves intact or come back with slavery intact. And even many war Democrats deeply resented the fact that the war had been refashioned into a war for emancipation rather than a war uh, to save the union and it was a deeply racist campaign the campaign that the democrats ran against abraham lincoln um was probably with the, maybe the possible exception of 1868 but it was probably the most racially vicious campaign ever ever waged for the presidency in the u.s uh, imagine george wallace to the to, you know to the 100th degree it was it was that bad and lincoln would later note to john hay his aide that it was a really weird thing that, you know, he regarded himself as a pretty easygoing and mellow guy. And he said, it's a sort of singular thing that despite that, you know, the fact that I'm I'm not a particularly controversial person or, or, or that I don't court controversy or acrimony that every campaign I've been involved in, except for my first election to Congress has been marked by this kind of really acid tone and viciousness. And I think, I think he, he really disliked it. By this point in time, 
the growth of the churches, their increasing politicization. That we talked a little bit about this, but was the the, the 1864 election very much involved religion in the country as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Lincoln was very astute. I think that his spiritual journey is heartfelt, and although he does not, and by any means, sort of become a, a, a standard evangelical Christian, there's a deep felt sense of spirituality to him by 1864, but he is, he is also astutely and avidly courting the support of church leaders, lay and religious, and church organizations and bodies. He really is the first president ever to court the evangelical vote, and he's doing it because he understands the power of those churches and those church leaders. He understands the influence that they wield, and it, and it pays dividends because the churches, by and large, the Protestant churches, fell behind the Republican Party in 1864 in a way they had never done before. And, and it sounds great, right? And and you can sort of get behind that in the sense that, you know, they, they want to win this war and eradicate slavery. But it also sets what some people today might regard as a sort of uncomfortable and maybe even inappropriate precedent because you had church leaders on the stump, you know, for Lincoln in 1864. Matthew Simpson, uh, one of the, the really important bishops in the Methodist Episcopalian Church, um, one of the so-called war bishops in the Methodist Church, you know, he gives this huge rousing speech on the eve of the campaign or on the eve of the election in New York. Uh, it's a sermon, but he calls it the war sermon, and he waves a, you know, a bloody flag and, and openly calls on his congregants to, to vote for the rail splitter president. Uh, you know, th this is the first time in American history when, when church leaders actively involve themselves on behalf of one political party and one candidate. Uh, and it had never happened before. His second inaugural, one of perhaps the most quoted pieces of political rhetoric, uh, March 4th, 1865. What's your interpretation of those 701 words? It's a fascinating document. It's it's the second or third shortest inaugural address that any president then or since has given. Uh, Frederick Douglass, who was in the crowd that day in the audience, said that it sounded more like a sermon than a state paper. And it's, it's deeply religious. He's invoking religious themes. He's quoting directly from the Bible. He's paraphrasing from the Bible. He's adopting the sounds and cadences of the King James Bible that was then widely in use, which sounded very Elizabethan and Shakespearean because it was of the same era. And unlike most Americans who were Protestants and deeply believed that the war was, or Northerners believed that the war was a righteous cause and divinely ordained and they were on God's side, God was on their side, Lincoln effectively says this war was divine retribution on the entire nation, North and South, for the sin of slavery, because the North had been in, you know, complicit in that sin. And he said that it was really unclear what God willed, but that, you know, we, we remember that speech for the sort of uplifting part where he talks about, you know, what reunification could mean after the war was over and binding up the nation's wounds. Um, but it's easy to overlook the part where he's really ripping directly from the King James Bible and promises that if the war continues, every lash of, of blood, you know, every drop of blood drawn by the lash, by the slave owner's lash, will be met um, with, a, with, with blood drawn by the sword. And he's effectively saying that I have no idea how God intends this war to shake out. But I understand my role in it, and it could very well mean that there will be a lot more blood lost. So it's it's a it's a very Old Testament type of um, type of sermon, and it's remarkable. And I don't I don't think any president since has, has given such a deeply religious public address, and certainly not an inaugural address. 
less than six weeks later, he was felled by an assassin's bullet. Uh, and the fact that it happened on Good Friday had tremendous spiritual import for the country. How did they respond? How did citizens respond? I mean, imagine that you've just gone through four years of, of, uh, of events that seem biblical in nature and proportion and import, and your ministers have been telling you that they are for four years, because really that's how people understood these events going on around them, and they seem very Old Testament. Um, and then this leader who was emancipated, or, you know, he, I, I would argue that slaves played a, the predominant role in emancipating themselves, but on paper at least, like Lincoln has presided over the emancipation of four million enslaved people. And then suddenly he's shot to death on Good Friday. He's imagined, reimagined immediately as a Christ-like figure. And so just imagine those churches that's that Easter Sunday that were just teeming with 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 mourners and 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 religious celebrants and the it it seemed to be it, it just reinforced people's sense that they were living in historic times, meaning biblically historic times. And it and it led to a tendency to try to apotheosize Lincoln in it in his death and make him into a more pious and religious person than he had been uh, in his life. The churches discovered that they had uh, the ability to move the country and, and had some serious political clout. How long did that become a guiding force for evangelical churches? Well, I would argue that it's still a guiding force today, but we can certainly see it, you know, to, to, today the term evangelical for, for a lot of people, for the for, for the public, means something a little more narrow than it, than it meant then or may mean to a lot of religious Christians today. I mean, when we talk about evangelical in the late 19th century, we're talking about, you know, what today we might call mainline uh, denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, uh, Baptists, Disciples of Christ. And in the late 19th century, certainly they became, you know, they, they persisted in this comfort level with with bringing their religion into the public sphere and that could take different directions right in the late 19th century that could result in say the the some of some of the um you know anti-vice movements that that religious christians were deeply involved in uh, anti-pornography anti-birth control uh anthony comstock uh francis willard and and the temperance movements those were really socially coercive but many evangelicals believe that it, they they could and, and should involve themselves in electoral politics in order to enforce a particular view, their particular view of Christian morality on the, the broader country. And that put them up against a lot of a rising generation of Jewish and Catholic immigrants, many of whom held different ideas about things like, like alcohol. Um, but at the same time, you could also see that uh, on the left, the social gospel movement uh, within the, the Protestant churches in the late 19th, early 20th century was deeply involved in progressive politics and in causes like uh, labor reform, health and safety, women's rights, children's rights, children's uh, rights in the workplace. And so you could see Christians both on the left and right way more comfortable by the late 19th century involving themselves in electoral politics as Christians on behalf of their churches uh, than would have been the case before the war. And I'd argue that's a that's an enduring legacy of, of, of the way that the war impacted the churches. One thing that I try to talk about in this book is that, you know, Christianity and religion generally was a real important prism and framework that people applied in understanding the war, making sense of it, and trying to reconcile themselves to the cost they had to pay during it. But at the same time, uh, that the the religion was an important element of the war. The war also 
influenced religion and changed the way that that uh, American Christianity operated on both a, a an organizational and theological level. And how about for national politicians? Well, you never again could ignore the churches. I mean, this became, I think that there was a recognition, you know, after the Civil War that the churches themselves were powerful institutions that did not exist apart from politics and that you had to regard them uh, as an important constituency that you courted and that and, and whose concerns uh, you took seriously, which obviously persists today. Yeah. And again, that 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 crosses, uh, you know, that crosses uh, a lot of lines. So it's not just true of evangelical Christians today. Sure, but uh, it also stands in contrast to the concept of separation of church and state. It does, it, 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 it pulled, there's a tension there, right? And you can see during the war that the churches were enormously influential in moving <clears throat> the North uh, toward emancipation uh, as a war aim and outcome. And that's a, that's a pretty rich heritage. And you can, you know, you fast forward a hundred years the the mainline christian churches in the 18, 1960s white and black were enormously influential in pushing the civil rights act of 64 and the voting rights act of 65 through congress joe Rowell, who was a, a famous labor leader and who was who was leading lobbying efforts on behalf of the civil rights act of 18, 1964 would later observe that as he was walking through the capitol that spring you know lobbying members of congress and senators that you could barely turn the corner without running into somebody with a collar um, so the churches, you know, it, there's a tension, right? Like the, the, it can be a pretty righteous thing when, when the churches involve themselves in, pol in politics on behalf of a cause that people can broadly support or get behind. But then it, it can have, um, it can also have uh, the opposite effect where it, it, it breaks through that line in ways that uh, should cause people discomfort. Well, so how to get that balance right is, is the eternal question. So last question, and we only have about a minute left. You are comfortable declaring, even though he never became a churchgoer, Abraham Lincoln to become, to, to, was the nation's first evangelical president. I don't think he was ever evangelical in his personal belief. I think he was probably, if anything, closer to being a Unitarian. But I use the phrase sort of in a broader sense in that I think he was the first president to channel the enthusiasm and the influence of the evangelical churches to 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 uh, to fold the language that evangelicals used and the framework that they by which they understood the world into his public speeches and proclamations to meet them where they were and to help them use their faith to understand what the nation needed of them so in that sense i think he was you know he he did what he did 150 years before george w bush arguably became the first president to do it in a way that also resonated with him personally. I don't think he was ever personally an evangelical Christian, but I think that he understood the power of evangelical Protestantism uh, as a as a motivating force, as a as a as a way for people to make order of the world, and and he leaned in heavily on it. And I'm sure all of this study informs your coverage of politics today as well. It um, it's it's hard not to see the parallels today. Well, that's it for our time. Josh Seitz is the author of a new book about Abraham Lincoln called Lincoln's God, How Faith Transformed a President and a Nation. Thanks so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Hey, thank you, it was a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Remember, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll never miss an episode. And I'd really like to hear from you about our interviews. You can email me at podcasts, that's podcast with an S, at c-span.org. Your feedback is welcome.